the way the Saudis wield power throughout the Middle East and the larger Islamic world is, is by harping on the kind of conservative, intolerant interpretation of Islam that Europeans, Canadians, Americans have all identified as dangerous to world order. That's Vali Nasser, renowned Middle East expert and dean of the School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, chair of the Monk Debates, and welcome to the Next Debate podcast. The trouble is that most of the debate on these issues... We are debating an obligation we are already committed to. It comes after you and can haunt you. Any issue has caused me greater agony and anger. We are standing at the threshold of a great evolution. Very serious issues. Let's get to the point. The international community's hopes for pushing back ISIS and ending the humanitarian crisis in Syria have been dealt a major blow by Saudi Arabia, and it's doubling down on a regional rivalry with Iran. Vali Nasser, one of the world's top authorities on the Middle East, thinks the worsening conflict between Riyadh and Tehran could be a tipping point in an already dangerously destabilized Middle East. The future of Saudi-Iranian relations and their impact on the Middle East with Vali Nasser next on the Next Debate Podcast. Vali Nasser, welcome to the Next Debate Podcast. Thank you. Well, let's dive right in here. I want you to talk to us about what you believe is driving this this current and uh, seemingly quite serious deterioration in Saudi-Iranian relations that we've seen over the last uh, the last week. Well, at, at the core, what we have is a great power rivalry in the Middle East, which is not very different from great power rivalry in other regions of the world, say in Europe or, or, or in Asia. Uh, when you have two uh, aspiring uh, and, and rising powers that, that, that want influence in the region and see uh, the other one as, as, as a rival and, and uh, see regional issues in zero-sum terms, you end up with this kind of a jockeying for power. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran both uh, crave influence and uh, importance. And uh, they are um, very keen to uh, assert that. And this has been going on for the past four decades. What actually uh, uh, intensified this um, competition at this point in time uh, is a number of things that have happened. Uh, first of all, uh, Arab Spring caused the collapse of a number of major Arab states. So you look at Syria, Iraq, um, Yemen, and Libya. They all have collapsed into civil war. Egypt is only a shell of its previous existence. This uh, uh, has two effects. One is that it has expanded an arena of competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia. In other words, because you have civil wars in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, uh, the, Iran and Saudi Arabia both are more incentivized to uh, move aggressively in order to pick up the scraps as the uh, civil wars present them with opportunity to expand their influence and, and uh, uh, roll back the influence of their, of their rivals. Secondly, the collapse of the Arab world is very worrying to Saudi Arabia because uh, Saudi Arabia stood on the shoulder of other Arab states and is a premier power player within a stable Arab world. Now that the Arab world has collapsed under the feet of Saudi Arabia, it feels much more vulnerable and it uh, sees the Iranian threat uh, in a sort of outsized fashion. And then finally, 
what we have is that the uh, Saudis are very uh, unhappy with the U.S.-Iranian nuclear deal, uh, U.S.-Iranian talks and then the nuclear deal with the international community. Because for the past four decades, the security architecture of this region has been a tight alliance between the United States and the Arabs, and Saudi Arabia in particular, to keep Iran out of the region and maintain a tall containment wall against Iran. Once the United States decided it was going to talk to Iran, it was signaling that it's no longer willing to follow the same hard containment strategy. And uh, once there was a deal, it meant that the United States would maybe allow Iran to get back inside the region. Now, it, once Iran comes back into the region, then the, the, it would be much more difficult to contain it. Uh, so Saudi Arabia has a feeling that, A, it has lost its special status with the U.S. as its premier ally. Secondly, Iran was already difficult enough to contain when it was uh, outside of the region. Once it gets a foothold in the region, it will be much more difficult to contain it. And I think that's the reason why Saudi Arabia is particularly keen on using uh, the sectarian card, because it calculates that uh, uh, accentuating sectarian identities it creates a wall uh, of fire against Iranian influence. Iran is a Shia country. It's a non-Arab country. If you create hostility among Sunnis towards Iran and Iranian influence, uh, that's a way to come uh, to sort of block uh, what might otherwise be an unimpeded Iranian influence in the region. But but these very bold moves on the part of Saudi Arabia, this execution of uh, Sheikh uh, Nimr al-Nimr, in in the face of American pleas to to not accelerate the sectarian divisions, what what does this say about America's strategy right now in the Middle East? Well, you know, America is, is still trying to handle Saudi Arabia as if the events of the past four or five years have not happened. So the, the U.S. is very tolerant of Saudi Arabia. It gives them a, a great deal of latitude in, in doing what they want. And the knee-jerk reaction to Saudi uh, uh, misbehavior is A, to ignore it, B, not to say anything about it, and C, to defend it nevertheless. So when the Saudis started the war in Yemen, without consulting Washington or giving it 24 hours notice, Washington didn't complain publicly, didn't do anything about it, and ended up supporting Saudi Arabia, regardless of consequences. So, so in some ways, um, uh, United States either uh, has influence with Saudi Arabia but doesn't know exactly how to exercise it because the rules of the game have changed significantly. And in the past one year, uh, Washington's... Uh, approach to Saudi Arabia has been, because the Saudis are nervous and because we signed a nuclear deal, uh, we should reassure them, which means that uh, you, uh, you know, continue to um, tell them that you know, the, the, the relations with Iran are not going to go anywhere beyond uh, the nuclear deal. And then, you know, we're very, very sympathetic to any kind of a grievance you have uh, about Iran, and we're very tolerant of whatever actions you want to take. But I think the execution literally has pushed things beyond a point where Washington is comfortable. <laughs> because, first of all, <clears throat> this was a real blatant Saudi provocation. This was not a reaction to an Iranian uh, maneuver. The Saudis took the, took the initiative to escalate things. So you can't blame, blame this thing on Iran now. Secondly, it's very clear that Saudis, uh, by 
playing the sectarian card, are going to make the war on ISIS, which is now a concern for Canada, United States, and Europe, much more difficult for two reasons. One is that sectarianism basically uh, fuels ISIS's narrative. ISIS in the region is, a, is an anti-Shia, anti-Iranian fighting machine in Syria, in, in uh, Iraq, in Yemen. The more you emphasize sectarianism, the more you help the appeal of ISIS. And secondly, by putting focus on Iran, uh, the Saudis make it much more difficult for the U.S. and its international allies to actually prosecute a war against ISIS. Take the example of Iraq. Our, our principal pillar for fighting ISIS uh, in Iraq is the Shia government of Iraq and its security forces. And it's now the United States being put in a very difficult position that if it supports Saudi Arabia on the execution, it will alienate the Iraqis, and it would, that would limit uh, Prime Minister Abadi's room to maneuver. If the U.S. takes uh, uh, too, too harsh a position on the execution, then you know, it runs the risk of alienating Sunnis in varieties of countries in the region. This is not what the United States needs in dealing with Syria and, and with ISIS. U.S. strategy was built on getting everybody inside the tent. And so the Saudis basically have torpedoed uh, the ISIS and the uh, strategy of the United States, European, and the efforts to end the war in Syria through diplomatic means. And I think for the first time, the U.S. is now really fa facing the fact that, that, that Saudi strategy is at odds with the United States and actually is counterproductive. And so it, would, it, it is time that the U.S. basically uh, updated its policy towards Saudi Arabia. You're listening to The Next Debate. I'm Roger Griffiths. My guest is renowned Middle East expert Vali Nasser. Coming up, I asked Vali Nasser to explain what a reset in U.S.-Saudi relations could look like against the backdrop of an improving Iranian-American dialogue. Debate. 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 In this debate. If you're enjoying this podcast, visit us at www.monkdebates.com for outstanding public policy debates on the big issues of the day. Hear Glenn Greenwald take on ex-CIA chief Michael Hayden on state surveillance. See Tony Blair debate the late and great Christopher Hitchens on whether religion is a force for good in the world. Read Henry Kissinger's debate with Neil Ferguson on whether China will dominate the 21st century. These and other great debates, free for watching, listening, and reading, all at www.monkdebates.com. Talk to us about what that updated policy might look like, because I, I think a lot of people kind of scratch their heads and, and say, look, the, the energy calculation is no longer there. We're no longer as dependent as we once were on a safe, secure supply of oil from the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia in particular? Well, you know, I think there is a tremendous amount of inertia in American policy towards Saudi Arabia. So, you know, there, were, there, there was the reasons why we relied on Saudi Arabia so much was one was energy, two was that, was that it was the pillar for containing Iran. Energy argument is not there and we're no longer... Um, you know, as steadfast in, in that containment, uh, we think that they, our relations with Iran might change. So, you know, there is no strategic reason for that alliance anymore. Now, there is economic ties, and the Saudis are capable of exercising enormous amount of influence in the West because of uh, what they buy. 
They buy huge amounts of weaponry in the United States, in Europe. They buy a lot of manufacturing goods. They invest uh, their sovereign wealth fund in the West. And that does create certain uh, tolerance uh, 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 because of that uh, business uh, relationship. But I think that all of these things will gradually are changing. I mean, you know, the Saudi Arabia's elements of power in this region uh, are, are, is money and oil, which is dissipating, and it's ideology. And uh, ideology is actually something that is quite dangerous to us. In other words, the way the Saudis wield power throughout the Middle East and the larger Islamic world is, is by harping on the kind of conservative, uh, intolerant interpretation of Islam that Europeans, Canadians, Americans have all identified as dangerous uh, to, to uh, world order. Uh, so so in, in that sense, uh, uh, you know, when we look very closely, we see that there are a lot of problems in this relationship, and it really does not have strategic legs to go into the future. The problem, as I said, is one is inertia, and, and the second is actually that Iran, despite the nuclear deal, is not ready to come in from the cold yet. And that creates a pause, if you would, in American foreign policy, because uh, you know there is worry that the nuclear deal may not go far or far enough yet, or Iran may continue to threaten Israel or play the role of a spoiler. So, uh, you know, we're dealing with a, with a changing picture in the Middle East uh, where perhaps uh, our, our skepticism about our alliance with, with, with Saudi Arabia is moving faster than our enthusiasm about Iran replacing Saudi Arabia as, as, a, as a main ally in the region. Hmm. Interesting. So casting our minds forward, is there a, a danger of more of these proxy conflicts springing up in the context of a, a Middle East destabilized by the Arab Spring and by a, a whole set of problems that we know beset it? Yes, for, two, for, for, for the following reasons. First of all, I, I think the Saudis moved with such speed and intensity in this crisis that they now have put themselves in a corner. So they've not only uh, uh, made a sectarian gesture at the beginning that provoked the crisis, but they were quick to cut all ties with Iran, including even banning uh, any Saudi from traveling to Iran. Uh, they, they forced uh, a number of their allies to either cut uh, ties with Iran or downgrade relations with Iran. It's not very clear how the Saudis can climb down from the tree now, having taken such an extreme step. Secondly. The, the, the entire way in which this thing has, has now unfolded is, is, is into the public domain. So how does Saudi Arabia explain to Sunnis in Saudi Arabia or in uh, the rest of the Middle East that uh, somehow it's um, maybe the sectarian uh, issue is not as intense as uh, they had assumed and perhaps uh, uh, you know, there is room to at least, uh, uh, you know, tone things down with Iran. So the Saudis basically uh, uh, have put themselves on a path from which they cannot easily retreat. Uh, and uh, uh, secondly, uh, you, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia are not likely to go to war with one, one another. Uh, there is no sort of territorial... Uh, proximity between them. They're across, a, across the Gulf. Uh, I don't think either of these countries want to go to war, but they will fight one another through these proxy conflicts in Syria, in Lebanon, 
in Iraq, in, in, in Yemen, uh, in, in Afghanistan, possibly in Pakistan. You're going to have this uh, 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 conflict essentially unfold in these uh, in these uh, uh, arenas. And, uh, and that actually not only destabilizes those countries further, but it makes it very difficult to fight terrorism. So th- take the case of Yemen. You know, this is a country in which al-Qaeda was very active. There was already a civil war. Now, uh, uh, by heightening sectarianism in that country, the Saudis have actually helped not just al-Qaeda in Yemen, but also ISIS to set up shop as anti-Shia forces. And by bombing Yemen essentially into a failed state situation, it's not very difficult to imagine that ISIS will take over large chunks of Yemen the way it took over large chunks of Iraq and and Syria. And Yemen is going to be a far more destabilizing place than it was uh, five years ago. And the problem is that the Saudis themselves have no solution or capacity to manage these crises. So they're going to end up uh, on the lap of the West, uh, just as Syria and, and, and Iraq have. Now, you're the dean of uh, one of the world's leading uh, schools for international relations. You're a former diplomat yourself. I mean, what is the global diplomatic response to the situation you've just described? Well, I think there is, there is, there is sort of short-run things the international community needs to do, and then there are long-run things. So I think in the short run, it's important to encourage Iran to, uh, you know, maintain a, a pragmatic approach. You know, in Iran, at the beginning, the hotheads uh, responded, partly, I think, for domestic reasons, because Iran's going to an election and the conservatives wanted to rally the base around a, uh, around a uh, wedge issue. They also wanted to embarrass uh, uh, President Rouhani and uh, constrain him uh, uh, because they don't agree with his policies of engaging the international community. But after that initial response, uh, you can see that the the professionals in the foreign ministry and and, and President Rouhani have taken over. So they arrested some of the thugs and, uh, you know, Rouhani has taken a position of criticizing Saudi Arabia for breaking relations. Uh, But Iran, for now has not uh, uh, sought to escalate uh, or take punitive measures against countries that broke off relations with it. In fact, it blames Saudi Arabia for forcing them, sort of trying to absolve them of, of, of any uh, uh, wrongdoing here. I think the, the, those countries which actually have relations or conversations with Iran should encourage it to uh, you know, not, not uh, escalate. And then United States, Europe, Canada, which actually have relationship with Saudi Arabia, should exert a lot of pressure for the Saudis to tone down the rhetoric, to, uh, 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 to also find ways of, of de-escalating. And I think if you have a period in which some, cool, uh, some cooling off takes place, then it's possible for some regional actors like Turkey or or uh, Pakistan or Egypt to to start a mediating role and find a way in which the Saudis could could walk back from the extreme position that they have taken. And then in the longer run, uh, uh, you know, we we there is no option for the West to go back to having the Vienna process and to uh, uh, essentially uh, 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 try to get the, the Yemen ceasefire back in place. 
and uh, also um, uh, uh, encourage the Iraqi government to arrive at a political settlement with the Sunnis that would bring them into uh, uh, the Iraqi political life and deny uh, uh, room for extremists to be able to woo uh, Sunni tribes and disgruntled Sunnis into their ranks. Now, this might require much tighter management of uh, of Saudi uh, foreign policy, but it also it also means not just uh, you know giving them advice and reassuring them, but actually uh, you know conducting diplomacy with Saudi Arabia like we do with every other country. Which means we need to get tough when our interests are threatened by their policies, and we should reward them for when they uh, support our policies and and uh, help us. In other words, we shouldn't give the Saudis a blank check. Yeah, the, the critical issue here, Rudyard, is that, you know, with Iran, Iran is an adversary, it's not an ally. We have limited uh, leverage on it, and, and our expectations of, of, of Iranian behavior is actually low. Saudis are an ally. We don't, uh, we're not surprised or, or, or we expect when Iran undermines American policy in the region. We shouldn't expect it of Saudi Arabia, nor should we tolerate that from an ally. You're listening to The Next Debate. I'm Rudyard Griffiths. My guest is renowned Middle East expert, Vali Nasser. Coming up, I asked Vali Nasser to describe the future trajectories of Iran and Saudi Arabia in the Middle East as they contest for regional dominance. Debate. 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 And this debate. debate. If you're enjoying this podcast, check out my exclusive interview with Vali Nasser in Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Log on to www.globeandmail.com for thoughtful commentary and analysis of the issues driving the public conversation. Again, that website, www.globeandmail.com, Canada's national newspaper. Looking further into the future, do you think there might be a case to say that Iran could ultimately be the more natural regional partner for the United States, for much of the West in the Middle East? And possibly Israel as well. Uh, uh, yes, I mean, you know, if you if you looked at at long period history, Iran cannot remain in the shape that it is today. Just like China could not, or Soviet Union could not remain in the in the form that they were indefinitely. Uh, the, of course, Iran of today is very difficult for the international community to deal with, but. Uh, Iran ultimately uh, is on a path that at some point in time uh, is going to go through a, a change in character. You have a young population, highly educated, culturally uh, energetic, uh, you know, very global, technologically savvy. Uh, you know, all, all the you know, factors about Iranian society uh, are, 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 are in the positive direction. Uh, it's a country also uh, very wealthy in, in, in mineral resources, oil, gas, uh, varieties of precious metals, and it has a very diversified economy and a very rich history. Uh, it has a government that uh, is um, authoritarian, it's uh, ideological, it has kept Iran outside of, outside of the international community and the global economy. It cannot do that indefinitely. Now, there could be change in Iran in five years, or it could be change in 15 years or 20 years, but change is coming. And when that happens, 
then Iran would be like the Brazil of, of the Middle East or, uh, or like the China of the Middle East, the large uh, economy that's, that's going to be the pivot uh, for the region. Uh, Iran took itself out of the Middle East in 1979. When it decides, decides to come back into the Middle East, then uh, without a doubt, it would be the natural place for not, not just uh, diplomatic alliances, but, but business investment, economic relations, cultural relations. Uh, so, and I think Iran's neighbors understand this. And I think Iran's neighbors worried about the nuclear deal exactly for this reason. It's not so much that the nuclear deal, uh, you know, potentially could give Iran uh, uh, ability to enrich and uh, and and uh, give Iran money to invest more in Hezbollah. Those are those are immediate problems that ultimately the region can deal with. What really worries Iran's neighbors is that the nuclear deal was the was the first step in a long march towards change in Iran and change in Iran's status in the region. And, and that, that, I think, worries them. And finally, I mean, if Iran one day, given the right set of circumstances, could end up being the Brazil, as you put it, of the Middle East, what do you think the fate of Saudi Arabia might be with uh, a low and potentially long period of depressed oil prices with uh, its own sectarian internal divisions, with a uh, an aged monarchy. Well, you're absolutely correct. You know, just like Iran cannot remain in its current form indefinitely, Saudi Arabia cannot remain in its current form indefinitely either. You have a a a, a monarchy that essentially owns the country as a company, and this is the only country in the world that's named after a family. Uh, it 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 controls vast amounts of its uh, resources. Uh, it is highly authoritarian. It's highly tribal. The country is socially is, uh, is, is extremely conservative. It has a, a, a large and restless young population. And then it has diminishing resources. So, uh, first of all, the population explosion in Saudi Arabia means that the per capita value of oil has gone down. Uh, and, and on top of it, oil itself... Is, is losing its uh, its value. And, and, and in fact, in that sense, the greatest threat to Saudi Arabia is not Iran. The greatest threat to Saudi Arabia is the United States and shale oil. So the oil revolution essentially is going to force the Saudis to do with a lot less. And then they're also on the wrong side of history on a, on a number of other things. Uh, ideologically, their uh, their uh, uh, society is more conservative than the average Muslim world. The, the kind of Islam they preach is the one that the West now views as a direct threat. Uh, Saudi Arabia does not educate its population sufficiently. It's not, it doesn't have a productive capacity that could uh, that could carry the economy. The economy itself is not diverse enough. So you 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 could look at this and say. When does the break come? When is, that, when is it that this uh, sort of shell of stability uh, will no longer be there? Is it four or five years of low oil prices? Is it sectarian conflict within? Is it overreach in Yemen? And potentially it's all of the above. But I, I think the big change that's coming in the Middle East is in these two countries. 
it's 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 basically a crisis that's likely to play out in Saudi Arabia, and then hopefully it's it's going to be a transformation that's going to set uh, in Iran. And I think you know Western policy sort of has inclination of what this is hap- this that this is happening, and perhaps President Obama wanted to instigate this very thing when he pushed so hard for the nuclear deal. But I think the West sort of has an inclination of this happening, but cannot sort of put its hands around it yet. This is not an articulate vision of history unfolding yet. Well, Vali Nasser, always uh, insightful, always fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on uh, the next debate today. It was good being with you. Thank you. Vali Nasser was my guest today on The Next Debate. For more of his analysis on Saudi-Iranian rivalry, be sure to check out his award-winning book, The Shia Revival, How Conflicts Within Islam Will Shape the Future. Visit The Next Debate webpage on www.monkdebates.com for the full transcript of this episode and a copy of my interview with Vali Nasser in Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Thanks for listening to The Next Debate podcast. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, chair of The Monk Debates. (laughs) 